Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, and how they got to the White House. But more importantly, how history looks back on them. As always with me, the man, the myth, the legend, the one that actually does the research, writes the scripts. Neil, how's it going? Uh, it was uh, it was tough trying to close this, close this Nixon episode. I uh, was very tempted for a three-parter, but we're going to have to push forward and and hopefully everybody's satisfied with just two parts to Nixon but goodness it was um yeah it was it was just a lot to go over here would he be the first would he would have been the first one right with three yeah. episodes almost but I mean I feel like we actually had like a nice little cliffhanger at the end of the last episode so I was like ooh what if I did another like really unexpected cliffhanger for part two but yeah I wasn't I guess I just wasn't brave enough so we're not gonna get that No, they're not brave enough to be back to back to be continued. So you cannot, you cannot do Lord of the Rings. <laughs> no, no, true. I mean, maybe it would just have been too much too. You know, how much, how much do we need to know about Nixon really? So, <laughs> we'll find out, I guess. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bet that maybe, maybe Lincoln or Abraham, probably FDR, are good candidates for a three-parter. Yeah, I mean, even Teddy. Teddy's huge too in terms of just how much yeah. stuff he does. Um, he has like a post presidency that's really yeah. like yeah, it could be like and a pre presidency too. You know, colonizing Puerto Rico. Good for him, huh? Oh, Teddy, disappointments. Yeah, you're not doing your Teddy voice now. Are you done? No, with that? no, I'm not done. I'm just realizing that we're closing in on exploring how truly egomaniacal he was <laughs> or is. um but you know he's still a cool character uh yeah. at least the myth of him right right the folklore of him and yeah yeah but enough about the myth about teddy we're definitely gonna get to that in season five uh, with all of our almost like our mount rushmores of big name presidents that we have left So before we get into Tricky Dicky Part Two, how about we get the music to play? All right, so today I want to begin just in the year of 1968, okay? This year is a transformative year for this country in every way possible. You know, it's arguably more impactful than years like 1929 and 2008 because the country's issues are you know so much more multifaceted than just focus, focusing in on very serious financial collapses you know the US is dealing with you know what is a breaking point socially and politically from its prior trajectory with the civil rights movement and protests of Vietnam simultaneously occurring You know, the civil rights movement didn't just end in 1964 with the passage of the Civil Rights Act. There were still, you know, major problems that remained throughout the nation with, you know, segregation and a lack of economic opportunity persisting in, in black communities that, of course, still are issues today. So the momentum of that movement remained strong throughout the entirety of the 1960s and tragedies, you know, continued to occur one being Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in the spring of 1968. But, you know, also in 1968, you know, the war at Vietnam was at its worst point of its roughly 
15-year duration. During that year, you had over 200,000 people die from the conflict. The U.S. spends $651 billion adjusted for inflation in 2023. And you also have the peak number of troops involved in the war in 1968 as well. There really is, you know, it's really nothing, you know, and there's really nothing to show for this amount of destruction. You know, the war doesn't get any closer to ending. So, of course, Americans are starting to find little meaning or sense in why they are sacrificing so much over a country in Southeast Asia that, you know, we ultimately shouldn't have had decision-making authority over. And it wasn't imperative nor our responsibility to use these kinds of resources to chart Vietnam's direction politically. It's clear that 1968, you know, is a year of great pain with many Americans feeling it in some way. Despite all the progress that was made over the course of the LBJ presidency, both parties are ready for a new leader to provide some stability to, you know, what was a decade full of major events and accomplishments, but, you know, also pretty chaotic. Of course, in 1968, you know, we were also in an election year and the constant swing of election-related political events also took the country on a wild ride of instability. You know, when the year started, no one thought that LBJ would be seriously challenged for the Democratic nomination, nor that he would not run for the presidency at all. And that included Nixon. You know, he had won the general by a huge landslide in 1964. And even with all the turmoil happening at home and abroad, incumbent presidents are still so hard to beat especially in the context of the 1960s. You know, every incumbent president on the ballot had won their presidential elections since 1936. So, you know, the prospect of the Democratic Party being so willing to give up that advantage didn't seem likely. But, you know, this is why 1968 is a year like no other, because both the parties were suffering from, you know, a major identity crisis. And what a you know, what unfolds for resolving them sets the course of our current, you know, our current split in the country for what voting coalitions the two parties proceed to capture going forward in each following election. In a weird way, you know, much of the Democratic and Republican co coalitions, you know, flips parties at this time. And this is essentially the gateway election for it. Before 1968, Democrats always won a deep south. It was known at the time as a solid South for being, you know, just the most loyal to Democratic candidates. That is, you know, unthinkable today, right? Like, when you think of Republican states, you can always lock in Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Texas, South Carolina, and the, the list goes on in the South, with Georgia in 2020 being the most wild shift we witnessed in electoral politics in decades. And, you know, I think a lot of people get confused with the fact that the Republican Party today stems from being the party of Lincoln, but has a platform that is more aggressive towards civil and equal rights for oppressed and marginalized groups of people. The majority of the Democratic Party fought to keep slavery as an institution in this country, but now is a party that non-white voters choose overwhelmingly in every election. You know, what happened to, you know, for these changes to take place? Um, I think you know, this election is the best, you know, you know, is what, you know, we can best pull from how to explain that change with the help of looking at it through the lens of Nixon. If you turn, if you tuned into part one, you may remember we left off with Nixon losing the 1962 California race for governor and that almost everyone considered that to be the end of Nixon's political career. Having already ascended to the vice president. Even him, he became like a very uh, emo sad boy in the corner. Painting his nails and, you know, yeah. putting dark that, lipstick on. Yeah, well, no, I mean, yeah, he, uh, 
I was going to say something about that later, but no, was, yeah, a good point. He um, definitely did not, did not. He started look. getting into like the cure. <laughs> yeah, not a, not a graceful loser by any means. Um, but, you know, already ascending to the vice presidency, presidency and following that up with losing two elections in a row gave him, you know, limited options of where he could go. He had already been a senator. And the governor's race proved that his standing with California voters was not, you know, what it was in the 40s or 50s. And so, you know, what kept Nixon in the mix for higher office as he suffered these defeats just was a severe lack of a clear leader or even like a rising star within the Republican Party. And this was mainly due to the major divide within the party itself between its conservative wing, mostly located in the Midwest and the South, and its moderately liberal wing located in the Northeast. These sides were almost always competing with one another for the Republican nomination um, during and after, during and post World War II. You know, uh, Dwight Eisenhower's administration reflected the Republican values of the moderate liberal wing of the party in that it was deeply committed to being involved in foreign affairs and expanding the federal government. And that faction of the party was, you know, even open to expanding civil rights and allowing more women into the American workforce. And so. The conservative base, on the other hand, advocated for isolationism, for continued segregation, and the shrinking of the federal government to promote deregulation. You know, in 1964, the conservative faction finally got, you know, one of their nominees on a Republican ballot in Barry Goldwater. And as some listeners may remember, this election launched Ronald Reagan in Republican politics with, his, you know, his convention speech, being able to showcase his brand of conservatism. The problem for conservatives in 1964, though, is that their policy positions were unpopular with a wide majority of the country, and that led to Goldwater getting destroyed in that election as a result. You know what? Goldwater sounds like a like the mayor from uh, Back to the Future. I don't know why. Every time you mention him, I think about Back to the Future. Yeah, that's like a I mean, that's like a favorite of yours, right? It's like a the 1980s like golden movie for you. I thought. Yeah, because his name is Goldie Wilson. I go uh, Major Goldie Wilson. I'm gonna be honest. I don't know if I've like have watched Back to the Future all the way through. I've always just seen little parts of it. That's the best but, movie ever made. <laughs> I see. I knew that. Or yeah, yeah. I feel like just that fact alone, I need to just give it a whole watch one time through the way, so that I just feel like I know you better. <laughs> um, Reelect Major Goldie Wilson. Yeah, okay, Goldwater. Yeah, Goldwater, he gets destroyed in that election. But I think, you know, going back to 1968, I think that election really demonstrates, you know, that even with the Vietnam War going disastrously and riots taking place in cities during the late 1960s, America is not close to being ready for a Republican conservative candidate. At the same time, the Republican Party was well on its way to trending away from their more liberal Eisenhower days. So for 1968, they needed a candidate who could satisfy both factions of the party to win. That really leaves only one person that they can turn to. And that, of course, is our guy. Tricky Dicky. <laughs> He's back. And even though he does, you know, this whole sad boy thing that we just mentioned in 1962 of saying he's done his last press conference, he actually starts laying the groundwork for reemerging as a presidential candidate soon after he loses that election. Like in, in a typical Nixon fashion there. Um, it starts really again. Do you think there exists another human being that has his exact facial features? 
I feel like Nixon has to be up there as one of the most unique human faces ever made by whatever deity you think exists up there. I feel like many people would disagree with you because some people would just say he just looks like a typical white guy, no? Like you can no. find in society. That nose, that chin, those bloaty cheeks, that hairline. It's so it's a lot of stuff. He definitely's got this grouch face to him that is kind of like a. I mean, I would say it has some distinctive Nixon esque like quality. That face, man. Tell me, you see that face every every day walking on the street? Yeah, well, it's like a grouchy face. Yeah, I guess I don't see. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I guess not. The next time like you see, the next time you see a, a white man walking down the street like that, take a selfie with him and prove it to me. Okay, we'll do. It's gonna be the weirdest request. They listen to the podcast. Find and he and, and ask him to to smile <laughs> like that. <laughs> they can't see your photos of Nixon. <laughs> they know. They know. They can Google. <laughs> okay, but. When we're, I think, you know, um, by the time the conventions were taking place that year, most political savvy people, okay, here's another picture of Nixon. <laughs> that, looks real, that looks fake. That's, that's like an like AI photo of Nixon. <laughs> But political savvy people could see that Goldwater was not going to win the election in 64 by the time the conventions come. Especially as LBJ was gaining so much momentum after the passage of the Civil Rights Act on July 2nd of that year. So Nixon, though, he loyally dedicates himself to sponsoring the brand of conservatism Republicans chose that year. And that gives him a lot of points with a party that, again, is trending in a more conservative direction. You know, he follows up his performance um, in 64 with you know, campaigning for Goldwater um, with another performance in 1966 when he, campa when he campaigned across the country for Republican candidates in the midterms which, you know, was not common in those days for former presidential nominees, you know, to do. It's actually pretty similar to how Trump tried to get involved in the 2022 primaries, or not primaries, sorry, just the midterms, only Nixon can claim, you know, much more success. You know, Republicans made major gains across the country in the, in the House, Senate, and state governor seats. Future presidents like Reagan and George H.W. Bush were elected to office for the first time in 1966. And Democrats held, you know, they held on the chambers of Congress, both of them, but it wasn't a strong enough congressional coalition to pass more legislation to continue LBJ's push for the policies he wanted to propel his goals, you know, for the Great Society programs. And just to be clear, this major rebound election in 1966 for Republicans was not because of Richard Nixon, really. It was more so, you know, a white backlash against the passage of civil rights bills in the prior two years. But It was still important to show that Nixon could be a figurehead again in a winning election. You know, it was the first time he had really been associated with any election win in a, in a decade. And that propelled him to, again, being the favorite to take over the Republican nomination for another general election. You know, from there, Nixon just continues to get lucky and catch a ton of breaks, starting with LBJ's decision to not, want, to not run for re-election. You know, prior to that decision, polls showed LBJ still leading Nixon by five plus percentage points in a head-to-head -head matchup. But you know, once he drops out, the new front runners for the Democratic nomination are George Dewey, Robert Kennedy, and LBJ's vice president Hubert Humphrey. And their party. That's what I was gonna. Also, that was what we, I, I know that we covered his decision, but I always wonder, like, was he just stepping down so that a Kennedy, like? 
I understand that he had like five points on Nixon, but I'm 99. Like LBJ has a lot of faults, and and he is rightfully criticized for Vietnam and and other decisions that he made. But he was he comes across like a, a party guy, like mm. do right by the party um, and by the country. And I feel like at least in my head. A Kennedy running after what happened to his brother would have been a slam dunk uh, re-election, and mm. it would have been as if that president was re- running again, you know. So mm. I know that you're saying like it's it's unheard of of a president not running, but it would have made sense if Robert wasn't killed because it was essentially a Kennedy, the the same Kennedy, the same way of thinking, a little bit more progressive. Yeah, uh, way of re- running. So it would have been another president re- trying to get reelected. In other words, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a. I think that that's a inaccurate like take in the sense that like Robert F. Kennedy, I think, had for out of all Democratic candidates, had the best shot in that election. If it wasn't going to be LBJ, I don't think that. I actually don't think LBJ was anticipating Kennedy to win, even if he wasn't in. You know, even with his dropping out of the race, nor did he really want him to win. I think he wanted Hubert Humphrey. Well, mm. he went back and forth on Hubert Humphrey a little bit. He was a little bit distrustful of him. But um, I mean, yeah, there's a. I think there's a lot of reasons why he didn't continue onward. I mean, Vietnam continued to not go well. And, but yeah, I think he actually, knew he fucked up. But the the I think actually the most major reason why he didn't continue onward is because of his health. Like, he just had, like, mm. health problems, even back to when he was in the Senate for the longest time. He ended up dying in 1973, which two days after what would have been, you know, the inauguration day of, like, the next president if he would have made it through yeah. another term, you know? So he was, you know, he was just, like, getting close to that age of, like, you know, just he was going to be dying. And that's not, you know, being a president uh, during a time like that, it's just, you know, you can't really perform duties, right? So... I think that calculation was just taken into context. I don't think he wanted to give up the presidency to the Kennedys because he didn't like the Kennedys, especially Robert yeah. F. Kennedy. We watched that movie where those two especially didn't like each other, right? So, and, and you know, Robert Kennedy in particular was very, very critical of LBJ, especially in 1967 and going into 1968. Like It would have been, been fascinating to see Nixon up against his arch nemesis yeah. the candidate well, against again. the brother right i agree i think that that would have been history like yes. that dumbass that pulled a gun yeah robbed us of a rematch like i would have wanted to see how nixon like with his ex- with his experience and now his pure determination of playing all the dirty tactics could he have taken down uh the second coming of a candidate i don't think he would have I mean, no. I'll get into a little bit more of that election, but no, I mean, I think especially because there's still so much momentum in the Democratic Party from like the 64 landslide. It's just they get, I don't think Humphrey is a candidate for them in this year, right? I think like Kennedy had, it's starting to get so much more momentum. I'm going to like get into that a little bit because I mean, Kennedy and George Dewey, really George Dewey's the first person to challenge LBJ. And this is like, He's ultimately angry at Kennedy later when he announces because he feels like he's just trying to steal his thunder because he's the anti George Dewey's the anti-war candidate. 
trying to, again, like, you know, challenge the incumbent. And then once he has some success in New Hampshire, that's when Kennedy decides to run. But Mm -hmm. then, you know, both of them are taken aback when LBJ decides to drop out of the race. And so it becomes a battle between those two. And then Humphrey hopes to just, like, win the Democratic nomination in a Democratic convention because he's too late to really compete in any of the of the primaries. You know, this is this is like a really um, tightly contested primary in that sense in the summer. Kennedy Kennedy's assassination is really like at the height of his momentum when he's winning the California. He had just won the California primary, a key state to really getting momentum in taking a nomination. And so this event really shook the whole Democratic Party to a low point as they lost really, I think, again, the only candidate they had who could unify their party for the election. And so the Democratic convention that year took place in Chicago and is notably famous for being the most chaotic and violent convention in U.S. history. You know, there were riots outside the amphitheater where it took place. Johnson was angry at Humphrey for trying to provide a compromise platform towards Vietnam, getting to a place of pushing for peace negotiations. You know, party leaders try to get LBJ re-nominated or have Edward Kennedy, another brother of JFK, enter in as a candidate instead. Ultimately, they had to unite around Humphrey, who unfortunately just did not inspire people in the way that was needed for a year like 1968. And it left Democrats very unsatisfied with their choice heading into the election. Complicating things even further for the Democratic Party they still had to deal with the fallout of the Deep South in passing civil rights bills in the legislation during LBJ's tenure. Again, those same states I mentioned before, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, etc., all felt extremely betrayed by their party for turning their backs on segregation. And in those states, the hunger to maintain and enforce segregation as well as oppress non-white Americans was, you know, not dissipating. You know, Hubert Humphrey with someone who championed yeah, the civil know, rights. Luckily, luckily it, by 2023, everything is perfect. So <laughs> you can look yeah. back and just wonder why society used to be the way it was and how wonderful we are today. This is, again, I mean, I think that I'm, I'm trying to outline here just the emphasis on like how we get a switch of the parties and constituencies here. But since Hubert Humphrey was a champion of the Civil Rights Act along with LBJ, you know, there was no way... They're going to stay loyal to Democratic Party after 1964. And this was huge because the Democratic Party firmly relied on those states to win elections. This provided an opportunity for Nixon to take an even greater advantage over Humphrey. But instead of Republicans claiming the South, we actually got another candidate that steps into the race in George Wallace. And this is the pro-segregationist former governor of Alabama. Um, you know, His goal was similar to those of past third party candidates and that he knew he wasn't going to win the election via the electoral vote, but he wanted to force the election to go to the House of Representatives, where in that situation, I felt like anything could happen, I guess, and southern, you know, at least southern state interests would have to be taken more seriously in that process. You know, now, you know, I know I'm spending a lot of time in this year, but I think it's important to emphasize just how powerful this election proves to be in getting us to where we are today. And it's not just, you know, reflected in the parties and the issues occurring in the country, but also in the campaigns, you know, and this is specific now to Richard Nixon. When, you know, when I was in college, I had to read a book for one of my classes called The Selling of the President by Joe McGinnis, who chronicles the whole, you know, Nixon campaign in 1968 as he's allowed to have direct access to Nixon and his campaign team and 
how they strategized getting him over the top for a win that year. His campaign team consisted of people like Frank Shakespeare, who ran CBS for 18 years prior to that election. You had Harry Trelevin, which I probably mispronounced, who popularized the image of a candidate over the issues which he said were you know, boring to voters. Issues, that is. <laughs> um, and then you had someone like Roger Ailes in the campaign as well, the future head of Fox News, and a man who set up you know, the structure for all the TV broadcasts in the Nixon campaign. This team set Nixon up for success by putting him only in environments that he could thrive in on television, um, you know, firmly you know, learning a lesson from those 1960 debates. This meant that you know, he was not going to participate in any presidential debates, even though Hubert Humphrey like, challenged him many times to get in a debate with him. He instead would you know, take questions from voters only in a cultivated environment that you know, he could talk at length in on issues to look like you know, the most sensible, mature candidate. And, of course, it was extremely successful. You know, Nixon rose to double-digit leads in the polls in October, and his victory looked inevitable. Humphrey, though, made a momentous comeback when the opportunity for peace talks in Vietnam surfaced in October of 1968. Yes, you know, there was actually a potential for the Vietnam War to start to come to an end as early as that year. You know, if the peace talks happen before the election, it's a huge boost to Humphrey because he has more credibility in being able to champion his anti-war position as the general election day gets closer. And so, he can take credit for his influence as LBJ's VP and getting the country closer to being out of the, the Vietnam War. This development, in essence, is a disaster for the Nixon campaign, but nevertheless does not you know, justify what comes next. You know? This actually may be the moment where Nixon you know, moves to the point of no return of leaving a legacy of criminal. No, don't say that. And justice and destruction behind him. Um, Anything, all, everything is ju justified, you know? Ends justify the means, okay? Look, this really, this really sets the tone for what evil he was willing to be okay with in order to win. Um, That's what I'm saying. I think he could have beat the Kennedys. So... Nixon, Nixon interferes with the peace talks to ensure that South Vietnam calls him off before the general election takes place. You know, as a former VP and someone with political contacts everywhere, Nixon, of course, has contacts within the White House that are able to relay information to him and sabotage the talks. Johnson found out about Nixon's intervention and told him that he had blood on his hands at the time, but the news didn't get out to the American public in time, really, to make a difference. You know, the war wasn't ending. Humphrey's momentum came, you know, too little, too late. And Nixon crossed the 270 electoral vote line with 301 electoral votes to Humphrey's 191 and Wallace's 46. And so the Democratic dominance of the post-World War II era, it came to an end with this election, as four of the next five presidents in a 24-year span would be Republican administrations. It's just wild to think. Just it's just wild to think about all the all the truly atrocious things that happened in Vietnam. But I need to be president, you know. Yeah. That yeah. that type of mentality, and and not only, and obviously, uh, we need to you know point to Nixon in this case because you know he's the head figure, but a lot of people in the Republican Party and probably people in the McCarthy Party that didn't want um, that dude 
helped him achieve that goal. Um, so, yeah, there's I mean, a lot of people involved in this. Obviously, Nixon being the the president and our and our subject matter today should get a lot of the blame and most of the blame. But it's just wild to think like this is 100% not uncommon way of viewing politicians politicians like in the sense that this is just like a a, a a brilliant example of how politicians just view their goals as individuals they prioritize not, their goals right yeah in their own ambitions yeah and so i think yeah to your point like in those days even more so like there was there's a lot of carryover from administration to administration in terms of like the people who were like advisors and yeah. who worked within the administrations. Like just because you switched parties didn't mean that everybody was just out of the White House. Like, you know, there was a lot more of like carryover from those days of like officials still continuing to serve through each administration. And so that's why Nixon had, you know, resources because, you know, he had not been out of the White House for an extremely long time. And, you know, like there was incentives to helping, you know, presidents or, you know, candidates. Yeah, favors. Win, Had that token. Yeah, win elections, you know, and that gives you more credibility in the next administration, right? If you're able to be loyal to, you know, who the winner is going to be. So, yeah, I mean, there, there is. You can, of a like, it's very rare that you can, like, obviously, like when we were talking about Obama. Like I kept mentioning, like all the drone strikes, and that technically could be blood and on his hands, blah blah blah. But here is like a clear cut, like any anybody that died after 1968, yeah, is it's on their hands 100 percent because it could have been avoided. Like it's like, and yeah. but, I mean that's in like the peace talks could have fall fallen and the war could have continued. Everything uh, is possible. Like we can't say like it was 100 percent going to work out, but. It it didn't a hundred percent didn't because of what they did. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a, uh, definitely super accurate because, um, I mean, yeah, yeah, I, that's exactly how I would have put it. In that, like, the the fact that he just didn't let the peace talks occur during that time, you know, who knows what would have been worked out. But like, you know, the war goes all the way until 1975. You know, it's like, so this is just this is really sad that this kind of progress was delayed because you know, I don't know. I mean, just because like, I, I know it's like a, a big thing being president is a big thing. Cause when I say it like that, it's like, like, of course he's going to want to win the presidency. Like he's, yeah, but it's not that big, gonna, it's but, not that big. but like to have all these, you know, tens of thousands and more people die, maybe hundreds of thousands, you know, but like, it's just, it's horrible. It's horrible. So, um, yeah, really well put, but here we are. You know, Nixon finally achieves what he fought, you know, for so desperately for the course of a decade in actually winning the presidency. And he's ready to make his impact felt. Now, we highlighted some of his domestic accomplishments in part one. So I'm not going to go into detail on those, really, because I think a lot of what has passed is inspired by the popularity of the Great Society programs. With, you know, with that being said, I think I would be it would be unfair if I didn't call out, you know, a positive in Nixon and that he was. You know, not above being willing to cater or give in, whichever you think was his perspective, to the American working class on popular social and economic programs. You know, he's he's not a purist by any means. For the most part, he likes to be seen as someone passing legislation that is popular with the wider public. And so 
this is, you know, to his credit, he's not an annoying disruptor to progress for the country in the way that so many politicians are today. It's very likely that Humphrey also would have passed a similar level of legislation expanding the social and regulatory responsibilities of the federal government. But that's not Nixon's, that's not his goal, like the legacy he wants to leave behind as president. That's LBJ's legacy. He knows he's not going to top him there. You know, as I've said a few times, Nixon is looking forward to making his mark on the global stage. You know, soon after he's inaugurated, he announces that he would be implementing what is known as a Nixon doctrine, which was relatively straightforward. It's not, you know, as like much of a staple in American society, society as like a Mon- the Monroe Doctrine. But, you know, it's making the point that the U.S. would not enter into another war like Vietnam and committing so many American troops. Um, first, you know, the United States, you know, what, is, what it states is that the United States will, you know, keep all of its treaty commitments. But um, it also says, you know, we shall provide a shield if a nuclear power threatens the freedom of a nation allied with us or of or of a nation whose survival we consider vital to our security. And he's exclusively really only talking about countries in the like in the eastern hemisphere mm-hmm. um, because you know nato is protecting it's the europe is a whole different situation and again like things on the west countries in the western hemisphere different situation but the third part of it is in cases involving other types of aggression we shall furnish military and economic assistance when requested in accordance with our treaty commitments but we shall look to the nation directly threatened to assume the primary responsibility of providing the manpower for its defense so again it's really just emphasizing that, you know, American troops are not just going to be thrown into another, you know, war in some country that, you know, Americans know very little about that kind of thing. You know, we're not going to do Vietnam again. And so Nixon hoped this turn of de-escalating American military threats in the East would open up the door for peaceful talks with, you know, two of the communist powers. I mean, China at this point is not like so much of a power, but still, you know, a very big, significant country with them mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union. And he caught his first break with China. Just 65 years ago, the U.S. relationship with China was pretty much non-existent, as it was a communist country with a regime that the U.S. did not support in their civil war in post-World War II. You know, furthermore, the U.S. helped to maintain the country of Taiwan for the old government that had to flee from losing the war. And so today, that still remains a huge contention with China, stating, you know, them, you know, China stating, you know, retaking Taiwan as being one of their most important future goals nixon though is able to open the door to communication with china due to tensions they're having with the soviet union along their borders and this part was crucial because tensions between the u.s and soviet union were also still very high at this point the vietnam war is essentially a proxy war for them fighting each other with the soviet union aiding the north vietnamese so nixon sees an opportunity where you know if he's able to develop cordial relations with china then it puts pressure on the Soviet Union to calm down their own aggression globally because though it is politi- you know, politically isolated, China has a billion people at this point and can be a powerful country, as we've now seen. And so Nixon's quote at the time saying, you know, there's no place on this planet for a billion of its potentially most able people to live in angry isolation. And, you know, Nixon channels commute and this leads to Nixon channel, you know, setting up a channel of communication in China through his national security advisor. And later, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who is still alive today, actually. I didn't know, but yeah. uh, 100 years old. So Kissinger is, you know, 
responsibility to put out a feeler of opening up talks to achieve some sort of relations, you know, with one another. And China invited an American table tennis team to the country to compete, which is, oh, sorry, I'm going to repeat that again. After, so I all that. But China invited an American table tennis team to the country to compete, which is unprecedented for the time in 1971. You know, this amazingly helps drive more momentum to the point that Nixon becomes the first president to visit the People's Republic of China. And this is seen as a signature success. You know, Americans really had no idea what the country was like anymore or how it had developed post-World War II. Nixon's able to take hundreds of media members with him to film the whole visit and cast this shining light on the progress he was able to make in opening up such a significant part of the world to Americans. It's not like relations were rosy from there, but even even as we, you know, have you know now have very extreme tensions with China in some ways, they're also, you know, one of our most important trading partners as well. And that fact alone has a lot to do with Nixon's actions as president. So what do you like I've noticed that at least in my, I, I usually do like a, not not always, but for like the big names, like Nixon and Obama and stuff like that, and Clinton, I do like a cursory Google search and I read a few articles and I see a couple of videos and I've seen this accomplishment point pointed as a con. I've seen many people point to the fact that this opened the door for the empire that eventually China became and that mm. eventually is putting a stranglehold on the economy of the United States. So I know that you're painting it in a good light right now. And I, and I agree it's a good light in terms of like, you know, us having good relationships with foreign countries, especially given the fact that our economies are like deeply tied to one another is it is a good thing. Um, but how do how do you view those type of people that point to Nixon being the linchpin for the sun and the 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 sudden rise of China and becoming a global empire? Or yeah, super- I, mean, I, I I I would say that those people I, I don't agree with their viewpoint of that being a con at all. I mean I don't necessarily like I don't like the way that China the way that China's government operates. I'm not a fan of, right? Like in just, you know, having extreme surveillance over your citizens and just like... They're dictators. Right, yeah, exactly. Like the authoritarian regime there. Obviously, like I, you know... Yeah, but I mean, at least the United States doesn't doesn't do that, right? (laughs) Well, not as directly, that's for sure. Um, And like, you know, we can talk about China all day. Like there are some, I mean, there are ways that it's very effective in like how they can build public transit and like two, you know, so quickly. And here it takes like 20 years to build like, you know, five miles of rail sometimes. But, you know, that aside, like, yeah, I think that China would have found their way there eventually anyway. And I think that I actually think that Nixon's like reasoning here, like they have so many people. And we're just going to pretend like they don't exist or that they're evil. Like that is kind of inhumane, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and who who is humane other than Richard Nixon? Well, I mean, I, he's a complicated guy, right? Like I think that that actually <laughs> is a very insightful perspective on global that's affairs. One way to, that's, he, one way to com- what, that's one way to describe him. He's a complicated guy. He's, he's, I think he's right on some major issues like this one um where you're you're not going to change the government of china like you're gonna have to like live with the fact that this is 
how the how you know the country panned out to be and this is their course and you work within that like that is part of being a a good politician a successful world leader yeah, is of that course. and i feel to- like it's it's very narrow narrow-sighted or short-sighted or however we want to say that sure china has become a global superpower yeah. and yes there is there is a lot of debt that they hold over our heads but you cannot ignore the fact that there's a lot of contributions yeah technology wise and 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 a bunch of other stuff that if we would didn't have those relationships uh our like our our boats rose at the same time you know all all tides rise ships whatever whatever is the saying yeah. you cannot disassociate or, or or disentangle the 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 connections between our two uh, yeah. countries and how we both progress at the same time yeah there's essentially mutually assured economic destruction <laughs> between yeah. us now you know like it's just you know, and, and that and that in i mean in a lot of ways it makes things more safe, more peaceful, because it forces cooperation, right? And yeah, like, and money's fake. Everything is fake. Nothing is real. We made it up. Like, well, of, yeah. they're never gonna call in that day. It's fake. It doesn't exist. In some ways, though, it's it's real in a way that like no one's gonna. I mean, like, you do want people like losing their jobs and losing their money. Like, quickly changes their circumstances, and like nobody wants an economic, you know, global like crisis to happen and i think that you know conflict military conflict between china and u.s would lead to something in that sense because yeah you would have that breakdown of economic relations and so like i think that china and other countries like there's always going to be a someone rising and like that's if you're going to blame that on nixon 50 years ago for opening up relations i think that that's really just you're really just searching at that point like it's not like he's just I think being a good world leader in this, and I think China would have found their way even if he didn't open up relations, right? So, who knows? But that's that's just my take on it. Um, but you know, moving forward, Nixon's visit to China opened up a visit for him to the Soviet Union in 1972, as they, you know, felt encouraged by his willingness to enact friendly relations with the two communist governments. Again. Nixon also deserves a lot of credit here for what was known as his you know, triangular strategy between the two countries. If you can ease tensions with one of them, you can ease tensions with the other, which you know, then gives them less motivation to support the North Vietnamese in the Vietnam War. You know, Nixon would sign two arms control treaties of the Soviet Union on his visit that calmed down the fear of nuclear war breaking out between the two and also increased trade you know, between the two countries as well. Nixon and Brezhnev, the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, stated that they were, you know, moving the relations into a whole new era of peaceful coexistence, which seemed unthinkable just a few years before. So he really hated Vietnam, huh? <laughs> he hated Vietnam so much that he made friends with the Russians and and with the Soviet Union and and China. He's like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna associate myself with communists during the Red Scare. Just well, to fuck over Vietnam. Not. Just to fuck them over. <laughs> I mean, I think that he was, again, trying to find a way out of Vietnam by taking, you know, the North Vietnamese, like their supply lines, you know, making them making them more um, alienated into, you know, helping them through the conflict. But, 
you know, counter to the to his success in the Soviet Union and China, though, still was his handling of Vietnam. You know, he um, even with even with those successes, he could not get the North to come to the table for a peace agreement. He uh, enacted a policy, <laughs> and he, the policy enacted toward the end of the war was known as you know Viet Vietnamization, which meant that South Vietnam would have to fight on its own with the help of American weapons, while American troops steadily withdrew from the war. This temporarily stopped, though, when he decided to invade Cambodia in 1970 to stamp out supply lines to North Vietnamese on the Ho Chi Minh Trail that they called it, or um, the supply line anyway, um, of like weapons that came in. And so that decision proved to be a disaster as tens of thousands of more people died. Um, protests across the U.S. erupted, and that's how you get those uh, Kent State um, this is a school in Ohio, in northern Ohio, um, but students are killed on campus for their protests of the Cambodian invasion. And North Vietnam still does not come to the table for peace. Um, positive news really never comes in ending the Vietnam War. All U.S. troops left the country by 1974, and North Vietnam then proceeded to invade South Vietnam in 1975. 15 years of death Almost like the Iraq war, huh? and suffering, yes, and mostly caused by the U.S., essentially was for nothing, a major stain on Nixon's foreign policy record. So That was the, the, the official first loss, right, of the United States, or am I misremembering? Uh, I mean, yeah, I feel like, I mean, for a major war, yes, yes. And it's always kind of weird because I remember like when I was a kid thinking about that growing up, like, oh, they lost the Vietnam War. Like, what does that mean? Like, did we because I always just thought of wars of like someone has to take land from one another, you know, when you're it's very oversimplistic. But, you know, that like, the, I mean, losing really, I mean, like Vietnam, lost, I mean, everybody lost in that war in a lot of ways. Right. Um, yeah. But, but the main objective of deterring yeah. the North from taking over, it, it didn't happen. So we lost. Yeah, no, I mean, it's an embarrassing tragedy that the U.S., you know, always has to kind of, I mean, I mean, it should take responsibility just for how, you know, um, unnecessary that war was and what it did to just make it prolonged and even worse for every side involved. So, yeah, too bad we didn't learn our lesson, like you said, um, <laughs> and we uh, made the same Pretty much, you know, very identical error in 2003, 4, 2002, 2000, I think it was 2003 when we made Iraq. So, yeah. Um, okay. So, as you all now can tell, Nixon is so difficult to even fit into two episodes because so much has, you know, happened and he's very interesting. I probably talked about the 68 election for too long, but we have to take the rest of the time to talk about Watergate as it's likely something like this, you know, could probably never happen again and that a president would feel we're starting Watergate 50 minutes in <laughs> yeah it's just a well i don't know where our conversation is going to go but you know just to kind of go over the events here but you know i don't think a president's going to feel compelled enough to have to resign from office because of criminal conduct again i just i can't really see that it'd be so hard to imagine right because we you know we've arguably we've arguably had more criminal presidents than nixon maybe but that doesn't yeah. diminish <laughs> Does it diminish the damage he does to the country in the image of the government? You know, Americans, I feel like, have always had, you know, always 
have had like culturally, you know, a distrustful view of the government, right? It's sort of ingrained into our society. But Watergate, com- <laughs> Watergate confirmed everybody's own individual conspiracy theory of like the the Big Brother and them portions of society that are plotting to grab power in the shadows, right? Like if you you hear about all the George Soros conspiracies or like the, maybe like the 9/11 conspiracies, I think those have so much traction because of Watergate. You know, the the whole nation witnessed this very clear attempt from a president to use the power of his office to cover up so many of the illegal actions his administration took that had, you know, nothing to do with the actual Watergate break-in in a lot of ways. But this is why I think it's so mis- you know, people understand, sorry, misunderstand about the whole Watergate scandal. The break-in on its own probably doesn't get him impeached. You know, it was really more so the other crimes that Nixon and his men, you know, had to cover up in light of Watergate being exposed. That investigation, you know, that unraveled, you know, the the criminalities of the Nixon administration. So, you know, for this section of of like the podcast, to borrow a lot from the Miller Center from the University of Virginia, because there's just only so much time in a day. Um, But Watergate. You no, know, the one, the Watergate that I'm talking, the 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 break into the Democratic headquarters in 1972, you know, with you know the five people in, in Nixon's campaign staff, that actually was not the first break in. You know, Nixon had unconstitutionally created his own secret police organization. This is called the Special Investigations Unit to try to unearth this conspiracy that you know Nixon had you know fears about, um, where a leak would, um, you know, there would be a leak that would come out um, that would expose damaging foreign policy secrets um, in regards to his, you know, bombings of Cambodia and Laos that were really, really terrible, right, in 1970. And so these are things that, like, the public doesn't even know. Nixon's trying to make sure it doesn't get out because he doesn't want to lose the 1972 election. And so the president, you know, tried to get the FBI director behind him on this, J. Edgar Hoover, um, that, you know, there was this conspiracy that was out there that this info was going to get leaked when Hoover kind of turns him down for this, um, saying that, you know, there's no evidence that, you know, there's actually a conspiracy um, and he couldn't actually leak it to the press. He this is when he decides he needs his own team to try to investigate this conspiracy. Again, this kind of sounds like crazy. Right. But Nixon was just like a really fearful you know, man at this point in terms of losing power and, you know, having all these political enemies after him. He always just kind of like, you know, was looking behind him to see who was trying to take him down. And so this is how, again, this this unit is created, again, with no congressional authorization. This is kind of just like a rogue plot from the president to have like his own team of like investigators do these, you know, really shady, you know, behind the scenes sort of criminal actions um and so what kind of like so they were like days into the job when they just got caught like they that was like their first mission and they got caught um no that wasn't the first mission right that was like one of their later missions with this this is just like Mm. like watergate watergate happened in 1972 right where they got arrested and so this is four years into his first i mean he's almost on a real okay my bad my bad yeah so this is like the, the the fear kind of stems from what's known as like the Pentagon Papers, and this is just like a study, you know, that came from the Vietnam War that that mostly went over Nixon's predecessors' um, actions, right? It didn't actually detail much about the Nixon administration's 
you know, actions during the Vietnam War. It was just more so a study just about, you know, like the war itself and like kind of like, you know, just like general sort of conclusions about, you know, what, you know, led to certain events, right? And like the things that were taking place there. But, you know, again, it just it kind of stirred in fear that Nixon, you know, eventually was going to get found out about, you know, some of the errors he was making for during the Vietnam War. And that and that scared him. This is where, you know, there's these two people within, you know, this unit, Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy. They carried out an operation to discredit this person who leaked the credit, the Pentagon Papers. This guy's name is Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the to the press. Um, and so. Hunt and Liddy, they broke into this guy's. Is this this is deep throat, right? On in um, all the president's men. Um, uh, I don't know actually. <laughs> I'm not I'm not as familiar with that. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, Hunt and Liddy, they they broke into Ellsberg's office, tried to look for damaging information on him, um, and you know they really didn't get much, but um. They were the ones who were also part of the Wiregate break-in as well, um, Hunt and Liddy. Like, they were found out in that sense. Um, and so this is kind of where Nixon starts to see, like, oh, this is where this investigation could lead to. Because, like, the Wiregate break-in, again, like, it's it's not, on its own, it wasn't really a big story in 1972. Again, that happened before the election. Like, it was kind of like an ominous thing in the paper. Like, oh, yeah, these people just got arrested. Like for this break-in um and you know we're just trying to find out more about it and they didn't really have like direct ties to nixon at that point in terms of like nixon having any direct like you know contact with them like no one really knew what was going on but if someone dug deep enough into you know their other actions before they would be able to like kind of see more of these plots that nixon had going on behind the scenes and so especially within like you know his creation of the secret police organization carrying out these illegal break-ins without a warrant. Um, and so this is really like the the basis of the articles of impeachment that were brought against him by the House Judiciary Con- Committee, because like there's no powers in the executive or an article two that he has that he can like fall back on for taking these kinds of actions. Like there's a quote from Bob, Bob Haldeman, one of Nixon's envi- advisors, who's like, you know, kind of describing this issue um, in real time. And he's quoted saying, you know, the problem is that there's all kinds of other involvements. And if they started a fishing thing on this, they're going to start picking up other tracks. That's what appeals to me about trying to get, you know, one jump ahead of them and hopefully cut the whole thing off and sink all of it. And so he says, you know, the hope, you know, the hope of cutting off the investigation led, you know, well, that 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 whole effort is, you know, what led to this you know, smoking gun conversation. And part of all of this, too, is that, like, Nixon tapes his conver- conversations in the Oval Office, which ends up kind of, like, you know, backfiring on him because without these tapes, you know, how do you really... I mean, it's much harder to prove that Nixon, like, directly knows Actually about did it, yeah. he just, all these things happening. He can just kind of claim... It's like the ultimate, ultimate cell phone. It was, like, yeah. it was the precursor to uh, Trump's Twitter. Where he just openly said everything, and everybody's like, "Why are you? Why are you, dude? You're incriminating yourself wide open." But Nixon just didn't know that people yeah. are actually gonna listen to that. Do you yeah. think he would like? Like, I just imagine him like only sleeping two hours, maybe one hour, 
at night. And the rest would be him listening to that day's tapes just to see if he caught, he missed anything that other people were saying about him while he was out uh, of the office or just reliving the conversations that he had. Like, I just imagine yeah, him like... presidency or just during his yeah, presidency? The yeah. The entire time. I, I mean, I'm sure the dude, like, had to, had, like, a lot of sleepless... I mean, I would hope he had a lot of sleepless nights with, like, all the shit yeah. he did. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, he, he adamantly defended himself, like, to the bitter end when he left, a, when he resigned of from course. office, right? Um, I don't know if anyone, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the Nixon Frost interviews, but I think they've tried to make movies yeah, the, out, right? Oh, the, the, there's a yeah. movie that's very good. Yeah, so... He goes, I'm the president! <laughs> so like he's he's somewhat i mean i mean the way he defends himself is i think leaves out a lot of context for what's happening behind the scenes here and how he's kind of i mean this has all been very well documented very well studied that nixon i mean was very much just like a, a one of the primary coordinators in trying to you know keep his opponents from from getting any kind of advantage on him throughout his time in office. And that, you know, and that meant like, you know, going to these, to these kinds of means to, to keep them, you know, like to keep like, sorry, to be like one step ahead of them in these ways, like buying out Intel, you know, doing these kind of criminal acts, um, creating again, a whole department of like a secret police almost. Um, it's kind of wild. And so, yeah, he gets this, essentially a smoking gun tape, right, comes out where, you know, he tries to, to get the Supreme Court to block its release. Supreme Court allows it. Um, and so this is like Supreme an incriminating Supreme Court today tape. wouldn't have allowed it. They would have protected the president. Yeah, well, yeah, the court is much more politicized today, unfortunately. But, you know, like part of, part of his team is... Yeah, involved in, you know, like, uh, like has experience within, like, the Bay of Pigs, right? And so what's referenced there is that, you know, the the president, or Nixon says, you know, he wants the FBI to, you know, in his words, stay the hell out of this um, and suggested to the CIA that the problem is, you know, this will open up the whole, the whole Bay of Pigs thing. And the president just feels that, you know, without getting the details that, you know, to say that they just didn't want to get involved. Like, they wanted to, like, get into this. He's essentially just telling the FBI, like, quit investigating into this. You're not authorized to do so. Um, and so when people hear those tapes, obviously, you know, it, it's pretty easy to determine that he's just trying to, you know, make sure the investigation doesn't take place into his administration. Yeah, but that's, right? a, but that's essentially what Trump did with Comey. Like, essentially... Not only is it on record that he tried to stop it, he also point blank asked him, "Can I fire you so you can stop investigating me?" Yeah, I mean, look, but you got to remember this time, like in 1974, like the 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 ethical standards in the country are still much higher <laughs> than 50 years later, where you know, um, I feel like. Yeah, you can talk. Your, it doesn't matter what you do, right? Even if you're committing crimes, you're still going to have a whole voting block behind you if you're this cult of personality. And, I mean, Nixon wasn't necessarily this cult of personality. He was this guy who, like, struggled so hard to just... I mean, Trump also barely won, but, 
I mean, he was always going to have those supporters, right? And Nixon, again, like went through moments of like not thinking he was ever going to, you know, win an election again. And yeah, I think just like different circumstances. The contexts are different because like, again, I think America, the United States just has a much higher standard of their politicians back then. um, That, you know, they, Watergate, you know, became like the story in the country where people were following it you know, to a T. Um, there wasn't as many distractions either in that sense. And so everybody was engaged. Everybody was locked in. Um, and by the end, you know, he, Nixon had to sort of cave to the evidence that was coming upon him. Um, you know, he announced the recognitions of his key advisors in Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Um, you know, the next, you know, the Senate, Watergate hearings occurred and they were televised and widely watched. Um, you know, you had witness after witness reveal details about scandals that, you know, of the Nixon administration. And so his approval rating, you know, just went, you know, to an all time low. Um, and it was just, again, starting to become inevitable of like this. What year be, is this? This is all in 1974. And so with those tapes, you know, you had. Senator Barry. You know, that's two years, two years into Joe Biden's political career. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of wild that he. Yeah, this is that. <laughs> Their active president was have doing this yeah. stuff. But I mean, the you know Barry Goldwater is trying to you know it's it's feeding Nixon info on like how the Senate is going to vote because he gets vote like the, the Barry Goldwater is back in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, because. The House votes to impeach him, right? And so it goes to the Senate to whether they're going to convict the president or not. And the president's never been convicted on, like, articles of impeachment before. Um, You know, like, Trump got impeached twice, but the Senate both times didn't vote, you know, in the majority to— Actually, it has to be 67 senators who vote to convict. And so Goldwater, the conservative leader, told the president that there were— a maximum of 18 senators who might vote against his conviction under the articles of impeachment, which is too few to save him. He still needed, I believe, what would that be? He'd need six more senators. Um, and so that was the end of his presidency. He announced his resignation on August 8th, 1974, to take effect at noon the next day. So um, it was that, almost a sure bet that he was going to get arrested. That's why he did it. No, it was a short bet that he, yeah, that he was going to be removed from office in, like, the most humiliating way possible with, like, being thrown out of the American government by Congress. Um, again, something that no one has, like, subjected, has ever, like, gone through. And, like, you know, Gerald Ford's declaration of, like, our long national nightmare is over kind of, like, sinks in the point that this was, like, a year and a half long's worth of, like, you know what is this like you find out more information every day like i know that i know that is not enough and it it is it, never going to be enough for the things that he did and i know that we're brushing over a lot of stuff that he did like he started the he jump started the war on on drugs that yeah. led to a lot of horrible things he was clearly a racist uh homophobe um he prolonged vietnam he did a lot of shit he did a lot of shady things but I cannot imagine the hell that that paranoid little weasel went through that year and a half as people were trying to decide his faith. 
Yeah. Like, like that must have been like his own personal hell. And then knowing that he was forced to resign from the office that he so much wanted for like a decade and he finally got it and he is forced to let it go it's almost like a movie honestly like if i were to see it in a movie i would be like oh that never happens in real life the villain that type of character would have you know won in 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 real life which they usually do so it's a rarity that and again like i said it's not enough like to to uh compensate for the the terror that he imposed on a lot of people but to know that he got that type of comeuppance is just feel satisfied you yeah that's amazing yeah. but yeah no i mean it's really well documented too and like i think that you know it, it's worthwhile like even like, for me like i want to like you know dive deeper into that one day and just like to hear him Cause you can you can like go and like listen to these conversations that he has every day now you know and just you can i mean he's a very you know just anxious and paranoid man and so like yeah him being stressed out all the time i can see that being satisfying to listen to once you you know like learn about nixon in general but it still is just like it's annoying that he has things that I like about his presidency with all that in mind. <laughs> and it makes it very complicated for me to know where I want to like kind of put him in on like a rankings list, right? Because Nah, just the just the Vietnam shit that he did like puts him in the bottom for me. Like, like bottom what though? Like, I mean, bottom of all the other shitty other, like, there's only, like, maybe five good, maybe ten okay presidents, so the rest are just shit. But he's in the bottom for sure. Well, like, like hold on. Yeah, you said there are only ten okay presidents, and I'm maybe. not even sure if you said there were good presidents. Like, so bottom 20, bottom 10, bottom 5? Uh, probably bottom 20. Oh, well, that's, well, that is actually kind of decent, though, right? Because there's only been 45 presidents. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't a slave owner. He wasn't a Confederate, and he wasn't an open KKK. Uh, like, there's, 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 there's so much shit. But yeah, he sucks. Well, he does. Okay, I think that you can't just say he sucks because, because he obviously. I feel like I can. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Nixon. I just think he could have been so much more of a success story, and that makes him. I mean, I think again. He's like a tragic figure in American presidential history. Like, if he I don't just... think he's a tragic figure. I feel like tragic figures are like, like my dude that died during the speech, uh, or uh, Henry Clay is another tragic figure. Like things that are outside of their control that push down what they could have been. For me, those are tragic figures. Like uh, uh. Grant. To me, Grant is a tragic figure that he was straddled with such corrupt people around him that really brought down his presidency. Oof. Like stuff like that are tragic figures to me. But he, everything that happened to him was self-inflicted. So to me, that is not a tragic figure at all. Uh, yeah, you one up to me pretty good there. I think a lot of the listeners will agree. Uh, <laughs> but. I just, you know, you ever, you know, you ever like watch, I mean, maybe I've like said this on the podcast before, but you ever like just watched a game or 
you know, watched a movie that you already know the events are going to happen, but then throughout it, you just are hoping that like things are going to go differently. Like you just, it's a kind of like a foolish thing, but it's like so satisfying to do. I've, I've never done it that way, but I've, I've done it in a way that I start to pinpoint the moments like, Ooh, this is where, this is where it, shifts for you right here this is the moment you messed up your entire yes uh, momentum well no see i i like to stop the tape before that moment hits <laughs> because i just want to pretend that you know, that you know that there's a there's a, a friends episode i don't know what season is maybe season two or three where phoebe walks in on on Monica and somebody else watching Old Yeller or something like that. And they and Monica and everybody's crying. And she's like, why are you guys crying? This movie is awesome. And they're like, what are you talking about? And then they see the moment where the dog gets killed. And Phoebe's like, what the hell? What movie are you guys watching? <laughs> and then they figure out that every movie that has a sad ending, her mom would turn it off before... <laughs> The sad, so she didn't know about Bambi. She didn't know about like a like all those classic sad moments in I'm, movies. She didn't know about them. That's uh, so now as an adult, she's like figuring out. Oh, I've been just living a lie. Like I've never seen the real product. So that's what you're referencing. Right now. Okay, you're stopping yeah. the tape and not <laughs> absorbing the reality of the of the moment. You know, I think that's a very healthy thing to do. <laughs> no, no, not, that's not reality. <laughs> you can control people's reality, and everything can be really nice and sweet. That's essentially that is the, the definition of creating a bubble. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but then you know, I feel like just uh, I just I'm tired of like people making bad decisions, you know, and that includes me too sometimes. But I just oh every I'm time <laughs> every day I make a bad decision. It's just it's just being human. Yeah, but yep. At least my decisions don't affect millions and millions of people. Yeah, I was about to say like Nixon. I guess Nixon is being human. Probably can't say that. Um, <laughs> no. So Nixon is uh, that is Nixon. He had a pretty epic political career. Um, I would and, agree with that statement. Yeah, and and definitely I think is someone who needs to continue to be studied throughout. American history as yeah I feel like I feel like it's it's more compelling he's a more compelling figure to me at least than than a Clinton yes. in a sense that his rise is far more interesting and and um jam-packed with uh yeah moments that really not only drive the the conversation for like historians, but also like shifted the narrative of our of our nation. Yeah. And also, he's a great case study of you know corruption and and how uh, power enables for your self doubt and paranoia to be fueled because he had the power to create that that task force. He had the power to. And also all those jazz men around him. So yeah. it, it, it also like is a great case study of, you know, how can we curve presidential powers for that not to happen, even though it has happened afterwards. 
is probably happening today. Well, yeah, I, I mean, that's um, I think that's a good way to close. I, I mean, he's uh, yeah, definitely someone who uh, I mean, even more. I mean, not just Clinton. I think I mean pretty much every president around him. Besides, again, like maybe FDR, like some of the presidents we have left, who again, it's just very interesting, very good case yeah. study, should be studied further, but not a, not a good precedent, right? So, so Neil, now that <laughs> we've covered Tricky Dicky, everybody is at the edge of their seat, holding their breath. They've been waiting all season four to see. Dwight D, no thank you, LGBT. Oh my God, Dwight, even in Pride Month? Yep, during Pride Month as well. So that's that's too much of a, that's way too long of a nickname. Um, take, be taken down. He's been the, the champion the entire season four. And clearly you left Nixon to the end because he is going to finally take Dwight down. So Neil, it's Tricky Dicky. Your favorite president of all time, legally binding. No, it's going to stay oh my with God. Dwight what E. Hell? What is happening? I don't know. I don't, if he, know I don't think he's going to. I mean, it is very possible that he could win at this point. I'm just going <laughs> to let the audience know. <laughs> the it could be Eisenhower who stands at the end as the champion. I'm, I'm <laughs> a little more like wary of this might, of this just happening. So. Stay tuned. You know he could get upset, but at this point, I think it would be an upset. I'm I'm starting to get a little. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna need to go back to his episode. That that episode. <laughs> yeah. Because I honestly remember being shocked when you picked him. Yeah. And he's just stayed forever. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are a couple of um calls that I've regretted. I don't think I've regretted any of the Eisenhower ones though. So you know it's been it's been I like miss I miss our I I I you know who I miss? I miss Chester Sheeta. I miss him. <laughs> okay. That was very short lived. I think that's who he knocked off actually. It was against Yeah he Chester. did. Yeah. So that yeah. was a great upset. That was so much fun when you picked him. See we weren't yeah. stagnant. You shocked uh, the audience. I think we've now been, we're just I think, Eisenhower's probably been going for what, like eight months? I mean, he's almost at a year at this point. Uh, so that's that's kind of wild too. Yeah. yeah. Just the rock. He's just a rock. No, but he's not taking down. He doesn't want to put anybody over. Yeah. He's but, being selfish. But we got a side episode next, right? Yeah, do you, do we know what we're doing? Side episode? I don't think we know what we're doing. <laughs> no. We to to be determined. We can leave it as that, right? We can just say that we yeah. can be determined. Yeah, no one's going to be that heartbroken. <laughs> all right, well, that is all of season four's presidents. Uh, four seasons down. Well, four seasons up, four seasons down. And now we're left with the Mount Rushmore of big episodes. Mm -hmm. uh, we have Abraham Lincoln. We have George Washington, we have Teddy D, and we have FDR. That's it, right? Yep. That is it. What a what a season. What yeah. a what a season. We we'll we'll um 
we'll need to talk about the order and how yes. you want to close out. I have a suggestion. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting. So our plans is one more side episode, the four precedents, and then one final side episode in where Neil re-ranks every single precedent and officially gives us his rankings. Mm-hmm. Even though we're no, we know that Dwight D is his favorite president of all time, legally binding. He may not be number one in his rankings, uh, but it'll be interesting to see him go back and reorder yeah. his rankings. And it'll be fun uh, to talk about like the prior episodes, what I got right, what I think I got right, and then what I kind of regret. And then you can make fun of me more for some of those decisions and so it'll be fun for everyone hopefully and um yeah yeah it'll be a good time next season it's going to be kind of sad too but we still yeah, have it would have been it would be interesting to think about at least in your from your perspective since you're the one that makes the decision in the end um something to think about once you're um once we're down that line i would like to give give the audience your perspective of knowing what you know now because obviously you didn't know everything about every single president yeah. like you you have a you have a degree in in, polit- in social politics and all that stuff and it's history and you're a fan of history and, you, and you're working in politics and stuff like that but knowing what you know now about each of the presidents how would have you divided up the presidents for yourself in a sense that to give yourself like a more variety in champions like Uh, maybe you would have put uh grant on season four uh, or you would have put chester sheet on season one to have him for a little bit more as the favorite or yeah you would have put dwight over here whatever the case may be or not put lbj so close to who like stuff like that yeah no that's a yeah, I think that I, the way I went about picking the presidents for each season was not with any kind of structure other than just like I wanted it to to to, to flow. jump times times those. I didn't want to do yeah. a bunch of 1950, 60, 70 presidents all in a row. You know, I wanted yeah. to mix it up. So I think yeah, maybe I, I and also like you said, like I didn't know much about many of them, so. It was a bit random, and I and I kind of liked it in that way. Other than no, like, no, I I'm not saying like, we should we should have done it that way. I'm just saying, yeah. Now that you have everything in in in, in your back pocket, how would you rank uh not rank them, but how we would you change the order now? I don't think so. I don't. I think that again, maybe Eisenhower. I'm, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think we could have had longer champions if I just would have. Um, sometimes I I wanted to be a bit more provocative and get a different perspective on how I did like the um, decision at the end. And so I think Truman was taken down too soon. I don't think JFK should have won when he won. I agree. I agree agree with that one. I got a little bit carried away there. (laughs) Um, And yeah. Um, So there, there probably would have, I think that what it would have changed is that some champions would have reigned supreme a little bit longer. I actually probably wouldn't have picked Chester Arthur. That was also just like a, you know what? Like you, Chester, want, you wanted to eliminate Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. So, 
So I think that that just would have changed and we would have had more consistency of like, oh, yeah, there are more presidents winning like six episodes in a row. So, yeah. But no regrets. All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, Maybe. No, sorry. This is not the last episode. (laughs) We have a sad episode. So see you in two weeks. And then we're going to go on a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, as we prep for the Mount Rushmore, that that's gonna be the the subtitle of this that season, the Mount Rushmore of Presence. big episodes. Of big episodes, yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. See you in two weeks. Bye. <laughs>